The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Would you take your Bibles, please, and open to Psalm 91? I would like to read this psalm, and then we'll just spend a few moments in prayer together as a church family, wherever you are in your living room or wherever you're at in your in your house. Uh, I'll just spend some time praying together as a church family. Let me pray for you, and then we'll uh, go to Isaiah 40 for our sermon this morning. But first, Psalm 91, if you would open your Bibles to that and allow me to read this portion of God's Word. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent." For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. These are the words of the psalmist in the midst of trouble. And he is reminding himself of the greatness of God And uh, would you just join me in prayer? Let me pray for you. Let me pray for our church as we navigate these tremendous times that we are living in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning as a church family, and we thank you so much for these words from Psalm 91, Lord, of the security of the one who trusts in you. We thank you, Lord, for these promises here that you are a shelter to us, You are our refuge. You are our fortress. Lord, in you and you alone do we trust. We thank you for this, that though the world falters and though things around us uh, decline and the world changes constantly, Lord, we know that you are faithful. You are true. You are steadfast. You are constant. Lord, we thank you for the promises here in your word in Psalm 91 that we do not need to be afraid of whatever comes our way, whatever trials we find ourselves in today, Lord, we can find our hope, our confidence, our help in you. And we thank you, Lord, for the promise here that you give your angels charge concerning us. Lord, we know that angels are your ministering spirits. They do your bidding in some way, Lord, that we don't fully comprehend. They minister to us and they care for us. And we thank you for that, even though we're not always aware of that. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us 
We thank you that you have set us securely on high. We thank you, Lord, that when we call upon you, you answer us and you are near to us in the midst of our trouble and you rescue us. And we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all of this, you satisfy our longings. And so these are things that we need to hear in the days that we are living in, Father. So we thank you for these great promises. We pray, Lord, for our government. We pray for our leaders. They are under immense pressure as they make decisions affecting our entire nation. Lord, we pray for our president. We pray for senators and congressmen, for the governors, Lord, for others in leadership at highest levels of government in this country. Lord, we ask and pray that you'll grant them great wisdom as they seek to know what is best to care for and protect our nation. Lord, you tell us in your word that we need to pray for rulers and kings and those in authority. And so we do so this morning, praying for wisdom for them. We pray too, Father, for our church family. We come before you just knowing that there are many needs right now. Lord, there are some who are concerned perhaps about their own health. We pray that you'll minister to them and, and care for them and protect them. Lord, there are some in our midst who are now out of work. They have been laid off. They have lost their job or had their hours cut or had their pay cut. Lord, we pray that you will minister to them and that you will sustain them. And Father, that you will truly uh, provide for their needs in the midst of this time. And Lord, we pray for all of us that you will help us to be aware of the gospel opportunities that are now available to us in this time. Lord, we know that this is a, a great time for ministry. It's a great time for preaching the gospel. It's a great time, Lord, for bringing people to your word. And so we pray that you'll give us opportunities and give us boldness and give us wisdom as we speak to those around us that may be more attentive now to spiritual things. And we pray that you'll help us to have wisdom to do that. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for Maranatha family. Even though we cannot meet together, Lord, let us serve one another. Let us call one another. Let us check up on one another. And let us practice the one another's well for the sake of your name and for the health of this body. So, Lord, we commit these things to you now. We commit our time in the word to you. And we look forward to what you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. You know that we've been in the midst of a series on the one another's. Joe's done a great job over the last uh, couple Sundays taking us through another of the one another's. I want to take a break from that. I'll, I'll probably come back to that next week, but I do want to take some time this morning again to just address this issue somewhat. Uh, I did a little bit on Wednesday night. If you tuned in, you can go and watch that on our live stream YouTube channel. I do want to take another opportunity this morning to navigate through just kind of a response to this issue. We don't want to pretend that nothing's going on. We don't want to appear obtuse or insensitive or unsympathetic. Uh, this is a time for us to address a, a, a global pandemic. And people have questions, and the Word of God has answers. And so this morning, I, I do want to take uh, some time, and I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 40. I want to take you uh, maybe perhaps from a different angle. Wednesday night we looked at the issue of fear and anxiety and worry. And this morning I want to come at this issue from a, a different angle. And uh, let me begin by saying that I am certain that God is using this to expose issues in our heart. This is what trials do. Trials are used by God to expose what is in our heart. And oftentimes it's not until we're in a, a pressure situation or we're in a trial or we're in some adversity 
that those issues of our heart are actually exposed and brought out and, and brought to the surface. This is what God does in the midst of adversity and trials. He uses these kinds of hardships to reveal what is in our heart. And this is God's grace to us to, to see the inner workings of our heart in a way that perhaps we normally wouldn't see when we're not in adversity. And so adversity is a good thing in, in the sense that it, it tightens our spiritual lives, it, it fortifies our faith, and, and it has a way of really stripping us of perhaps some of the idolatries that creep into our life when we're in seasons of comfort. This is just human nature. When, when life is easy and life is not difficult and we're in a, a season of ease and comfort, it, it's very easy for the things of the world to creep in. It's very easy for idolatries to, to creep in. It's easy for self-reliance and self-independence and self-sufficiency to creep into our hearts. And yet it's adversity that reveals that to us. And so this is God's grace to us in a sense that trials are one of the ways that, that God strips us of worldly things and strips us of those idolatries that we need to forsake. One of the things that trials and adversity does is it reveals to us our view of God. This is God's grace to us as well, that in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trials, your view of God is revealed. We, we could say that your view of God is best revealed in the midst of adversity. And so if you want to know what your view of God is, ultimately, if you really want to know what your conception of God is like and whether it's a right view or a wrong view or an incomplete view, look at how you respond to God in the midst of your adversities. It's then that God has a way of exposing and revealing what we believe about him to come to the surface. He, he forces it out. He forces our view of God out into the open in the midst of adversity. And so I would ask you this morning, what is your view of God that is coming out in the midst of these circumstances that we are presently in? Is it fear and anxiety and doubt and unbelief and questioning God's sovereign purpose. If, that, if that's the case, then that reveals something about your understanding and your view of God. Uh, on the flip side, if your response is confidence and hope and trust and a calm conviction that he is still on his throne, then this also reveals something about your view of God. And so uh, this is a critical for us to understand that crises reveal our understanding of the character of God. And it's critical for us to understand these things because I am confident that it is a right understanding of the character of God that anchors us in the midst of times of trouble. It's not going to be our self-reliance. It's not going to be our independent American spirit. It's not going to be our rugged individualism that helps us through times like this. What's going to help us through times like this is a right view of God. And we need to be anchored in a right understanding of who God is and have a robust confidence in the nature and the attributes and the character of God in times of adversity. 
And so I want to prove that to you this morning. I want to show you that that your view of God is most critical right now in times like this. And I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 40 to help you understand that. You'll, you'll remember that Isaiah was a prophet of the Old Testament, and he ministered to the southern tribes at the time that the northern tribes were being taken captive by Assyria. So you remember that Israel was split into northern and southern tribes, 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. And you will, of course, remember that those northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria in 722 BC. Isaiah ministered to the southern tribes before that, during that time, and then after that time as well. And so he was a prophet to the southern kingdom, to the tribes of Judah. And he was calling Judah back to God. He was urging them to repent of their idolatry. He was urging them to forsake their rebellion against God. He was reminding his generation of their sinful condition and their need to return to the Lord. This is really what Isaiah chapters 1 to 35 are all about. It's prophecies of judgment that God was going to rain judgment upon his people because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience. And, and so the first 35 chapters are about God's retribution on the nation's and God's retribution upon his people for their disobedience. In Isaiah chapter 36 to 39, there's four chapters kind of here in the middle where Isaiah describes Assyria's attempt to conquer Judah, and that was put down. But in those four chapters, Isaiah reveals the fact that God is going to bring the southern tribes into captivity through Babylon. So what happened to the northern tribes with the Assyrians would happen to the southern tribes with the Babylonians, even though this is about 100 years before it would actually take place. Isaiah is predicting and promising the fact that Judah was destined for exile, that they would be a people who, like the northern tribes, would be brought into captivity through the Babylonian nation. They would lose their homes. They would lose their wealth. They would be stripped out of their, their places that they called home. They would be brought to a land that they didn't know and brought into slavery. And Isaiah says, this is going to happen. However, in chapter 40, Isaiah turns a corner from these proclamations of judgment, and he turns the corner into the comfort that God would give to his people. Notice with me the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 40. He says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here's, here's Isaiah opening chapter 40, and he's turning the corner into a new theme. He moves away from the judgment. He moves away from the retribution and God's condemnation on his people for their disobedience. And he says, but God's going to comfort you someday. He's going to help you. He's going to restore you. He's going to bring you back to the land. He is going to redeem you. He is going to draw you back to being his people and to strengthen his weary people. This is what God promises. This day is coming for Israel when God will redeem them and restore them. Notice verses 3 through 5 where God through Isaiah calls them to prepare for this day. It says, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. 
Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a summons to the nation of Israel to prepare themselves for the day when God will comfort them. They would be in a captivity for 70 years, but after that, God promises that he would comfort them. He would return them to the land, and he calls them to prepare the way for their return. And ultimately, we know that this return wouldn't take place, won't take place until the future, but it was inaugurated by the coming of Christ. Remember, John the Baptist is, is the one who was in the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the coming of Christ. This day is still future for the nation of Israel, but God promises there's going to be a day of comfort for his people. Then notice verses 10 and 11. Skip down a few verses where he says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. There's coming a day, God promises, when he's going to be a shepherd to his people. Israel. He's going to care for them. He's going to, he's going to care for them like a shepherd does the sheep, and he's going to restore them, and he's going to care for them, and he's going to sustain them and return them to the land. Th this is the comfort that God promises to his people as they're facing deportation to the Babylonian empire. But here's the question. Isaiah anticipates an objection, and the objection is this, but how do we know for certain that God is our help? How do we know for certain that God is going to do what he promises here? How can we be confident that he's really going to deliver us out of the hands of the Babylonians? How can we know for sure that God will comfort us? How can we know for sure that he's going to fulfill his promises? These are the questions that the Israelites would have been asking at this moment. And I think... Some of us are asking some of the similar questions today. Is God really big enough to handle this? Is God really able to comfort us and sustain us and help us in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic? Is he really big enough to, to help us through joblessness and decrease of wages? Is he really capable of helping us through isolation and all that goes along with that. Is God really able to help us? Is he big enough? Is he strong enough? Is he mighty enough? Is he capable enough of helping us? You see the same questions the Israelites were asking in their day, many are asking today. And the resounding answer to those questions is yes. God is big enough. He is strong enough. He is mighty enough. He is capable enough of helping and sustaining. He is wise enough and great enough to handle all that we encounter in life. And you say, how do we know that? We know that because of the character of God. And in verses 12 to 26 of Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah takes us, as it were, to the edge of the Grand Canyon of God's character and he presents to us one of the most magnificent and glorious descriptions of the character of God anywhere in the scriptures. What's the answer to our questions about whether God is big enough and able enough to handle the things that we find ourselves enmeshed in in this life? It's his own character. It's his own nature. It's his attributes. It's his being. It's who he is. He and he alone is the answer to the questions that 
we have. In other words, the answer to the concern in our minds and our hearts today is the character and the majesty of God himself. And so in verses 12 to 26, Isaiah gives us six expressions of the majesty of God to help us in times of trouble. Uh, Six expressions of who God is, of his nature, of his being, of his essence, that enables us to anchor ourselves in him and who he is as we navigate these troubling times. I want to give you those six expressions. They'll go fairly quickly because there's a number of them. But I want to give you six expressions of the majesty of God that are our help in the midst of times of trouble. Let's look through these together, starting in verse 12. Number one, the first expression of the majesty of God to anchor us in times of trouble is that God is infinitely greater than nature. God is infinitely greater than nature. In verse 12, I want you to notice there's a number of rhetorical questions that Isaiah asked to drive home the reality of the fact that God is sovereign over nature and infinitely greater than it. Look at verse 12. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Here Isaiah is describing for us the immensity of God over his created order. I want you to notice some of the things he says. First, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know what the hollow of your hand is? It's when you you cup your hand and you form a little uh, a little hollow there. And, and, and maybe for most of us, we can hold a, a tablespoon or maybe two tablespoons of water in the hollow of our hand. But notice what Isaiah says. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. The waters there imply all the waters on the surface of the earth, all the oceans, all the lakes, all the rivers, all the fresh water. And Isaiah says that God is capable of holding all the waters of the entire earth in the hollow of his hand. That's staggering. He's obviously speaking anthropomorphically here, but, but just think of for a moment how much water is upon the earth. We know that there's 71% of the surface of the earth that is covered with water. Uh, We know that there's about 326 million cubic miles of water on the earth, in some places seven miles deep. I was reading this week that if all the waters on the earth were placed on the United States and somehow able to be contained on the footprint of the United States, it would create a lake 90 miles deep. That's a lot of water. And Isaiah says, God holds all of it in the hollow of his hand. That's power. That is might. Notice his next expression in verse 12. And he's marked off the heavens by the span. The span here is the the distance from your tip of your small finger to your thumb. You, you can maybe hold your hand up right now. Go ahead, do it at home. And you can notice that, that distance between the tip of your pinky finger to the tip of your thumb. That, that's the span. And for most of us, it's seven or eight or nine, or if you have really big hands, maybe 10 inches. 
And Isaiah says here that God has marked off the heavens by the span. This is staggering to consider. That God is so great that he has marked off the entire universe by the span of his hand. Now, let me just give you some numbers here to to put this in perspective. The, The Milky Way galaxy, which our solar system belongs in, we believe is between 100,000 and 150,000 light years across. That's one galaxy. There's hundreds of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. In fact, scientists tell us that the observable universe is about 93 billion light years in diameter. It's huge. It's almost incomprehensible. And yet, God is so great that he puts his hand up to the universe and marks it with just the span of his hand. That's power. Notice the next phrase in verse 12, and he's calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. He knows how much dirt is on the earth. God has weighed all the dirt that is on the earth and every continent and every location on the earth. He's measured all of it like we might weigh a cup of flour. God has weighed all of the dirt and all of the dust and all of the sand on the surface of this earth. And he knows exactly how much dirt there is. That's power. And not only that, look at the next phrase, and he's weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Not only does God know how much dirt is upon the earth, God has actually weighed the mountains and the hills, everything from the smallest hill to the top of Mount Everest. God has weighed all of the mountains and the hills in a pair of scales like you and I would weigh fruit at the grocery market. It's incredible. This is how great God is. This is how powerful God is. And and this is what the Judeans needed to hear as they're asking themselves the question, can God really deliver us? Can he really give us comfort? The answer is a resounding yes, because he is infinitely greater than nature. And it's the same for us today as well. He is big enough. He is mighty enough. He is powerful enough. He is majestic enough. Reflected in the fact of his greatness over nature, he can handle your struggles. He is big enough to handle your struggles as you encounter them on a daily basis. If he can hold the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand and he can measure the universe with the span of his hand and if, if he can weigh all the dirt and all the dust and all the mountains and hills on the earth do you not think that he can also care for you of course he can that's the first expression of god's majesty that anchors us in the midst of times of trouble there's a second one Number two, God is supremely wiser than knowledge. Not only is he infinitely greater than nature, he is supremely wiser 
than knowledge. In other words, God is infinite in his wisdom. He is superior in his knowledge. In fact, he is incomparable when it comes to understanding all that there is to understand. God is the source of that. And notice how Isaiah communicates this in another list of rhetorical questions here in verses 13 and 14. Notice the first question in verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? What's the answer to that question? Is there anyone who has directed God? Is there anyone who has counseled him in terms of anything that he's done? And the absolute answer is no. There's no one, not, not one person has directed the spirit of the Lord and no one has acted as his counselor. When God created everything, he needed nothing. And as God sustains everything, he needs nothing. Notice the next phrase, verse 14, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Consulting is big business today. Firms and corporations will hire consultants, businesses that will come in and assess where they're at and provide wisdom and provide counsel and help them navigate something. That, that's big business in the world that we live in. But do you realize what this verse says? God has no consultants. There's, there's nobody. There, there's, there's nobody that God has to go to. There's no one who counsels him, no one who he consults with. There's no assistance. There's no uh, team of advisors. There's no second opinions. God, he and he alone came up with all of these ideas. He's the one who sustains everything. It's by him and him alone and his own intelligence and his own wisdom by which all things stand. He is supremely wiser than knowledge. Notice the last phrase of verse 14, and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. In other words, what, was there any instructor? Was there any teacher? Was there anyone who came to God and informed him and taught him and tutored him and mentored him and educated him? And the answer again is absolutely not. There is no one. Not one person has taught him and informed him of the way of understanding. This is a statement of the omniscience of God, the wisdom of God, the all-knowing, all-seeing, limitless understanding of the knowledge of God. It's tremendous. By the way, this reminds me a little bit of Job. If you want, you could turn back to Job or just listen. Job 38 and 39, you will remember that Job had a number of questions for God about his circumstances, and God shows up towards the end of the book and begins asking Job a series of questions to really prove to Job that he didn't understand, but God is the source of all understanding. Just listen to some of these questions that God probes Job with. In Job 38, he, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or, verse 8 says, Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Verse 12 of Job 38, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Verse 16, Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 19, Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? Verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? You see what he's doing? 
He's peppering Job with question after question after question to prove to Job that that Job doesn't have all the understanding, but God does. The questions continue in chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Verse 5. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And he continues on. Verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? In other words, Job, you don't know. But God does. He is the source of all wisdom. He is wiser than all things. And this is what the the Israelites needed to hear. This is what they needed to understand, that, that God knew exactly what he was doing. And beloved, we need to hear the same thing today, that he is supremely wiser than knowledge. You say, what is God doing in the midst of all this? I'm not entirely sure. There could be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of things that that God is doing today in the midst of this pandemic that we're facing. It could be a judgment of sorts on our nation or on the world for turning and rejecting him. Perhaps that's a possibility. It could be a wake-up call to the church that we need to get serious about the things of the Lord and stop entertaining the goats and start shepherding the sheep and proclaiming the gospel. Perhaps it's a wake-up call to the church. Perhaps it's a reminder that our security and our reliance don't come from earthly things, but come from the Lord. Perhaps it's just a reminder to us that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. We don't know all that God is doing. There are tens of thousands of things that God is doing right now, and we're aware of only two or three of them, perhaps, at the most. So, is God big enough? And is he wise enough to deal with what's on our plates and what we're facing today? Of course he is. Of course he is. So God is infinitely greater than knowledge. He is supremely, I'm sorry, he's infinitely greater than nature. He is supremely wiser than knowledge. Then number three, there's a third expression of the majesty of God that anchors us in times of trouble. It's this, that God is sovereignly superior to nations. He's sovereignly superior to the nations. Look at verse 15. He says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket or a drop in the bucket. Either one would communicate the reality here. If you think about a bucket of water, a a full bucket of water is is something, but a, a drop in it or from it is really nothing. Imagine for a moment you were in your backyard carrying a bucket of water and it's full and you sloshed it a little bit and just one little drop fell out of that bucket, would you stop and go back and fill that bucket up? Of course not. It's, it's one little tiny drop. It's meaningless. It doesn't really affect anything. And that's what Isaiah says the nations are like. He says the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Verse 15, notice what he says, and they are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. What, what are the nations like? Well, they're like a drop in the bucket, and beyond that, they're like a speck of dust 
on the scales. When you go to the store and you put your fruit on the scale there, do, do, you, do you wipe the scale out first before you do that? Of course not. Be, because the dust that's in there is negligible. It's insignificant. And Isaiah is saying here, that's what the nations are like. They're insignificant. Look at verse 16. Now he uses a specific nation as an illustration. He says in verse 16, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Notice what he's doing here. He's, he's choosing one nation, and he says, well, what if this one nation were, were able to, to cut down all of its cedar trees, which Lebanon was known for, and, and they made a big pile, and they stacked them up, and then they took all the animals from their country and their nation, and they put it on this massive pile, and it was this massive burnt offering, tall and big, and all kinds of wood and all kinds of animals upon that Alter his point is even that would not be enough to make them recognizable as a nation. Then his summary in verse 17, look what he says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless, literally void. This is what the nations are like compared to God. They're small, they're insignificant, they're they meaningless, they're empty. In other words, God and God alone is sovereignly in charge of the nations. He's sovereign over them. He uses them to accomplish his purposes. They are merely the tools that he uses to fulfill his plan and his design in this world. And so they're the, the means by which God is accomplishing his purposes. And we need to hear this because so often we think nations are powerful and mighty, and certainly we need to respect those in authority, and we need to pray for those in authority, obviously. But it's easy for us to wrap our minds around the fact that, that the nations around us seem so big and so strong. And here we're reminded of the fact that they're small, and they're insignificant. And God is sovereignly the one in charge of them. And the Israelites in that day needed to hear this, that even though God was going to use the Babylonians to remove them and take them into captivity, it would last 70 years because God ordained that. And God is sovereign over the Babylonians and God is sovereign over the nations. And we need to hear the same thing today, that he's sovereign over our nation. He's sovereign over the coronavirus. He's sovereign over how far it spreads. He's sovereign over our economy. He's sovereign over our unemployment rate. He is sovereign over all of those things. Because ultimately, from God's perspective, the nations are, as verse 17 says, nothing and meaningless. So is God big enough? Is he big enough to handle what our nation's going through, what our state is going through, what you're going through, what our church is going through. Is, is he big enough to handle those things? Of course he is. He's sovereign over all of that. So he's infinitely greater than nature. He is supremely wiser than knowledge. He is sovereignly superior to nations. Number four. There's a fourth expression of the majesty of God that anchors us in the midst of trial. It's that God is vastly better than idols. God is vastly better than idols. And now you may think, well, this isn't 
something we need to hear, but we do because it is relevant to where we're at. And it was relevant to the Israelites as well that they were a people who were turning to idols. They were engaged in idolatry. And sometimes in our own hearts, we will run to idols of the heart. And what does Isaiah say here about that? He focuses on the uniqueness of God, the, the, the fact that God and God alone is God. He cannot be reduced to an image. He cannot be reduced to an idol. He cannot be reduced to some sort of likeness in his creation. He is unique. He is alone. He is creator of all things. He's in a category all his own with no comparisons. Notice verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? The answer is none. No, nothing can be likened to God. No, nothing can be compared to him. There's no likeness under the heavens that can be used to describe God. There's nothing that he is like. In fact, one of the biggest errors, God says in Psalm 50, verse 21, is you thought that I was just like you. This is the danger of the Israelites. This is our danger as well, that we think that God is just like us, but he's not like us. And there's nothing in the created order that can be used to, to describe him or liken him. And this is what Isaiah goes on to describe in verses 19 to 20. Look what he says. He says, as for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Isaiah describes two kinds of idols that are being crafted. There are idols made of metal like gold and silver, and there's a craftsman who, who designs it and builds it and crafts it. And then on the other hand, there are some who are too poor to, to, to have something made of gold and silver. And so instead they select a tree or they select wood to, to make some sort of image and they bow down and they worship it. But Isaiah's point is no image made of metal or gold, or silver, or wood can approximate or describe what God is like. He's incomprehensible to the created order in terms of anything that we could liken him to. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 44. Let me show you a couple other places in this context of Isaiah 40 to 66. There's a couple other places where Isaiah describes just how foolish this is. Notice Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 9. He describes here the, the folly of idolatry. Notice Isaiah 44, verse 9. It says, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame." Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. He's showing just how foolish it is to create and design idols. Then go to verse 12. He says, The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with a strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails, he drinks no water, becomes weary. You see how foolish this is? 
He's crafting idols. He's creating these icons that supposedly are a likeness of God, and yet in the process, he himself is getting hungry, and his strength fails, and he's becoming weary in the midst of this process. This shows you how absolutely foolish this is. Then verse 13, another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it up for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Now notice this, verse 15. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before of it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat, and as he roasts a roast and is satisfied, he also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm, and I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Do you see how foolish this is? He takes a piece of wood and some of it he uses to make a fire to to keep himself warm and to make his dinner. On the other piece of it, he crafts this idol and he bows down and he worships it and he asks it to deliver him for it is his God. What absolute folly this is. The same wood that is used to warm him and feed him is now also used to make an idol. You see how foolish this is? The implication is he can't do that. That idol can't deliver you. Go over to chapter 46, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 5. Let me just show you one other place where uh, Isaiah mentions the foolishness of this. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 5 says, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon their shoulder and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place, though one may cry to it. It cannot answer and it cannot deliver him from his distress. Oh, how absolutely foolish this is. He's crafting an idol and he sets it up and he cries out to it, but it cannot deliver him from his distress. And now notice the contrast in verses 8 through 10 of Isaiah 46. But remember this. And be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Do you see the contrast? These foolish, empty, meaningless idols that cannot deliver anybody, and yet here's God saying, but I'm God. And there is no one like me, and I've declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. In other words, I'm the one who's able to deliver you, and I'm the one who's able to sustain you, and I'm the one who's able to help you in the troubles of your life. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40. This is what Isaiah wants us to understand. It's what he wanted the Israelites to understand, that God is big enough. He's powerful enough. He's not like anything in the created order. No idol can approximate him. He is not like that. He is unique, and he can handle anything that we encounter in this life. So we trust him. And there's a 
calm and there's a settledness and there's a, a calm confidence that we have as we trust in the one true living God. This is what the Israelites needed to hear and this is what we need to hear as well. He is vastly better than idols. Number five, there is a fifth expression of the majesty of God here that will anchor us in times of trouble. And it's this, that God is enormously grander than rulers. He's enormously grander than rulers. This is similar to what we looked at with the nations just a few moments ago. But now he, he focuses in just not on the nations, but on the rulers themselves of those nations. We tend to think that rulers are important, they're powerful, they're mighty, they, they wield power, and in many earthly cases, they do. But notice what God thinks of earthly rulers. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? In other words, doesn't everyone know this, Isaiah says? And what is it he wants us to know and think we should know? Look at verse 22. It is he, God, who sits upon the circle or above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. This is a wonderful description of where God dwells. He's not being comprehensive here. He's not trying to describe for us the dwelling place of God and all of its detail. He's just saying the dwelling place of God is the heavens, which he has stretched out like a tent for him to dwell in. And, and from that vantage point, as God from the, the heavens where he is dwelling, as he looks upon the earth, it says the beginning of verse 22, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth. I love this. God sees our earth as a circle. It's not flat, by the way. It is a circle. It's spherical. From a distance, it looks spherical. It looks like a circle. And he sits far above that. He sits high above that. And from that vantage point, look at verse 22 says about its inhabitants, the inhabitants of earth, the rulers of earth. He says its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This is how God sees the rulers of the world. Small virtually insignificant, like a small insect. This speaks of God's power. It speaks of his sovereignty over his creation and over the rulers of this earth. And notice verses 23 and 24. It says, He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. This is how fleeting human leaders are from God's perspective. They're transient. They're here for a moment and then they're gone. They're, they're chaff that is blown away. They're stubble that is here for a moment and then gone. They're, they're meaningless. They're reduced to nothing. He blows on them and they wither and they're done. Who is it that establishes rulers and who is it that takes down rulers? It's God. 
Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 says, It is he who changes the times and the epics, who removes kings and establishes kings. God is the one who does that. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 says, It's the Most High who is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is sovereign over every ruler of this world. And the Israelites needed to hear that. They needed to hear it as they're facing deportation to Babylon. And they needed to know that God was even sovereign over that. And, and we need to hear the same thing today. That it is God who is in charge of rulers and thrones and dominions and kings. It is he who is sovereign and raises up leaders and brings them down and so if if that's the case if if he's that sovereign over the rulers putting them in place for the time that he designed and he de prepared for them is he not able also to handle whatever's on your plate is he not able to deal with what's facing you? Can you not trust him with your work and your health and your finances and your future? If he's that sovereign and that big, do you think he can also handle the situations that we find ourselves in? Well, there's a sixth and last expression of the majesty of God that anchors us here. And it's found in verse 26. Notice how Isaiah wraps this up. He says, God is considerably larger than the stars. He's all the things that we've just mentioned, and those things alone would be unique. And yet, as Isaiah wraps this up, notice what he says. He says, God is considerably larger than the stars. Look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. You ever gone out at night when there's no lights and you look up and you see the stars? If you're in a really dark place, you can actually see the stars in the, the Milky Way. Isaiah says that God has created them each and he's numbered them each and staggeringly he's named them each. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible that, that God has named and numbered each one of the stars. And I was doing a little research this week. We believe that in the Milky Way, the galaxy that our solar system is in, we believe there are about a hundred billion stars. And as I said earlier, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the known universe, which means there are almost an innumerable number of stars in the universe that God has created. And what's staggering here is Isaiah says he's named each one of them. And verse 26 says, not one of them is missing. Listen, of the billions and trillions of stars in the universe, there's not one lost. God has named them. He's numbered them. He has put each of them in place by his strength and by his power. What's the point? 
If God is that powerful, is he not big enough to handle what is facing us? If he cares enough to name every star in the universe, does he not care enough? And is he not big enough to handle the situations that we find ourselves in? What's the point of all this? The Israelites, wondering if God would comfort them, needed to understand the character of God. And it was the character of God that would anchor them in the midst of their troubles. And beloved, the same is true for us today. It is the character of God that will anchor us. It is the character of God that we tether ourselves to in the midst of troubles. It is the character of God that forms a a steady mooring for us in the seas and the storms of life. So I wonder this morning, are your problems too big for your view of God? Or is your view of God big enough? to see your problems in the light of his character. Beloved, he's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our confidence. And so I ask you this morning, what what is your view of God? Is it consistent with the view that Isaiah has just described for us? Or have you succumbed to a low view of God? And I guarantee you, if that's the case, then your problems are going to seem much bigger than they should if your view of God is what it it should be. So may we at Maranatha have a view of God that is great. May we have a right view of him. May we have a high view of him. May we have an accurate view of him because it is that that will anchor us in the troubles of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this description from Isaiah. We thank you for this incredible, marvelous, glorious description of your nature and your character. Lord, we thank you that it is your nature that anchors us. We thank you that it is your being, your promises, your faithfulness, your character that is our help and our hope. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to be a people who fix our minds and hearts upon who you are. God, if this trial has exposed in us a deficient view of you, then we pray that you will help us to correct that so that we can be a people who accurately reflect the right understanding of God so that our lives then can manifest the fruit of a life that is fixed upon the sovereign character of our God. So we thank you for this, Lord, that you are in the midst of a changing world. You are unchanging. You are fixed. You are trustworthy. You are reliable. You are faithful. And we praise you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.